Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be forging ahead in a a new section of the letter that we started last week. Uh, What we've done through this study of Hebrews, which if, if you're visiting for the first time today, has taken us all the way from the beginning of the year to this point. What we've done has mostly been look at promises that God has made to us in Jesus. Almost all of Hebrews is about exposing what's really wrong with us. That for all the different ways our problems show up, for all the different ways in which each of us is unique and distinct in where we, where we struggle, that really underlying all of our problems is one common problem, that we have failed to believe that God is for us, we have failed to trust that his words are true, and that obeying him is the key to life, that ultimately we have been unfaithful to that core relationship at the heart of our lives and have traded it in for relationships that have been failing us, that ultimately every problem we've got, no matter how unique to you, is ultimately rooted there. That's what we've seen. And that God, the uh, offended party, the one that we've abandoned, has actually bridged the gap through Jesus. He has taken it on himself to heal the relationship that we broke. Promises that we've been covering have included things like the defeat of death, which hangs over our heads like this dark cloud that calls into question everything that we would try to accomplish in this life. That death itself has been overthrown by the power of Jesus and his resurrection. We've got to promise that in, in Christ, God has come to us, has sent us a mediator that heals this relationship, a, a go-between that, that makes us able to enjoy him in the way we were created to enjoy him. We've got the promise that in Jesus, there is a sacrifice so perfect, so powerful, that all traces of our sin and shame are wiped clean. And what we haven't seen much of up to this point in the letter is what it would take for us to, 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 to have a stake in what Jesus has provided for us. The first part of this letter is almost all about promises. But those promises are only good news to us if there's a way for us to claim them. What would it look like, in other words, from our side of this relationship, for our relationship with God to be healed? What would it look like for us to move from being enemies of God to being friends of God? And the answer that Hebrews gives to us, the one we started unpacking last week when we looked at the first part of chapter 11, is that what it looks like for us to have our relationship healed with God is faith. Faith is the core concept, the core calling of every Christian. Last week, the way we defined it, based on verse 1, is that faith is claiming as the reality the promises that you can't yet see. We said that the, the best way to understand verse 1 is to say that That faith is the substance of the things that are promised to us, the things that we hope for. Faith takes those things that are in the future and plants them in your life now as if they're already here. By faith, you go ahead and stake yourself to them being true and begin to enjoy the effects of them even though they're still future in some very real sense. That's what faith is. Now, the guy who wrote this letter was probably a pastor And he wrote to friends of his to try to encourage them. And when he did it, he used some very powerful rhetorical tools. And one of those is examples and illustrations. And what we're going to get for the rest of this chapter is one after another illustration of the kind of faith he calls for in verse 1. If verse 1 defines it, then these guys that all of his readers would have known, would have grown up hearing about, help us to see and connect with what it would look like for us to own this faith, to plant it at the heart of our lives, to take those promises from the future 
and make them substantive in our life now. And the first major example that we're going to unpack today is the example of Abraham. Abraham's been called the most powerful exemplar of faith in all of the Bible, and I think with good reason. And this, this passage that we're going to look at today gives us different highlights from his life that show us how he acted on the promises of God, how through faith he claimed them as his own. Really what we're going to do today is look at two different things. The passage is mostly about Abraham. The, the verse 8 all the way through, uh, through verse 12 is about him and episodes from his life. Then verse 17 picks that up again and begins to tell us some more about Abraham. Throws in a few of Abraham's descendants, but not really to add to the picture, just to show that Abraham's faith carried on through those who came after him. So, so those two sections are about Abraham. But then right in the middle, in verses 13 to 16, it's like our author wanted to grab his readers by the collar and shake them and make sure they weren't missing what he was telling them about Abraham. They would have been familiar with the story he was telling. He doesn't want them through that familiarity to be numb to the, to the implications of it. So in verse 13, he grabs him, shakes him, and says, here's the point. Here's why I'm telling you these things. So this morning, to, to try to follow what he was doing, we want to first look at the faith-shaped life of Abraham, and then we want to, we want to come to that middle section, to the, to the place where he's driving in the implications of it, and say, what would it look like for us to share Abraham's faith? What would our faith-shaped life look like based on this passage? That's where we're headed this morning. Now, if you found the text, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read uh, from Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read verses uh, 8 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heavens, as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, 
made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Technical difficulties? All right. So Abraham's faith shaped life. I think the text highlights several moments in Abraham's life that are meant to show how he made the promises that God had made to him real in his life. And I want to just walk through them one by one. I, want to, I, I think there's four of them that are highlighted for us, beginning at, at verse 8. The first thing that we know, and by the way, maybe I should say this first. If you're new to church or if, if this is maybe your first time at a church and you're not familiar with the, the stories of the earlier parts of the Bible, Abraham, who we're about to spend a lot of time talking about, is one of the most important figures in what we call the Old Testament. And the stories about him are back in uh, the first book of the Old Testament, a book called Genesis. So what I encourage you to do is, is to spend some time later today reading those original stories. Uh, we'd be happy to point them out to you. They start around chapter 12 and go on for several chapters. Uh, the stories will, I think, help you understand better what we're going to be talking about today. Where verse 8 picks up is at the very beginning of Abraham's story, which is told in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was just this random guy living in a random desert in the Middle East, what today would be probably Iraq, living in a town called Ur. There's nothing particularly uh, noteworthy about Abraham as far as we're told. God just comes to him out of the blue and tells him to leave the land of his father's to go to a land that he would show him and that through Abraham, God was going to save the world. He promised to give him a promised land, a, a place where, where God could, could reconcile himself to his people, have, have a new harmony with them that had been lost because of sin. And that through Abraham, he would build a huge nation. Descendants as, as, as numerous, our author says, as the sand on the seashore. That was the promise Abraham was given. But that was all he had. It was a promise verse 8 says Abraham left. He obeyed God's call, left his homeland, and went to a place that he didn't even know. It's not just that he left and went to a place he'd never been before. When he left, I think the point is, he didn't even know where he was going. Now, we are living in probably the most mobile society in the history of the world. America in the 21st century is about as mobile as any society has ever been. It's hard for us to connect with the radical nature of what Abraham was willing to do out of faith. In, in the days in which Abraham lived, your whole identity was tied up with where you were from, with your family, the fact that your family had lived there generation after generation. Abraham may have been kind of a nomad who, who wandered around with sheep or whatever, living in tents, but even then, like you were confined to a, an area that your ancestors, your tribe, uh, was, was inhabiting for generations and generations. You didn't just leave. You were who you were when you were born. That Abraham was called to, to cut off all of those ties, and he did it. The point is that he took, by faith, he took the promises that were made to him, promises that he could not see, and he planted them in the middle of his life and acted on them. The next piece to the story is take, takes this same theme of, of going from a home to a place that, that you're not a part of another step forward. Verse 9 says that by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. I think what we're getting here is that finally when God did show him where he was supposed to go, when he told him, this is it, this is the one, he takes him up, he shows him all around, he can, where he can, he, a high place where he can, he can see out, and God says, I'm going to give you all of this land. But now that he knows, 
He's living there as if he's an alien, as if he's a stranger in exile, living in tents, while the land that he's told he's going to receive is owned, dominated by these powerful kings and their armies. And I think that almost would be worse than not knowing where your land was at all, right? To, to, to have seen it, but then not to have it. Not only that, to have seen it, but not to be able to have it in your own strength because it's owned by those who are more powerful than you are. I mean, that just makes matters worse unless you're living by faith. I'm a, I'm a gadget guy, have been for a long, long time, and I love the Apple Store. So sometimes when I'm killing time at Green Hills Mall, that's where I go. Walter and I will, will leave Mommy wherever she is, and we'll go into Green Hills Mall and play with all the toys, right? Because they let you play with the iPads and the iPhones, and they have a little area for the kids, and Walter and I love it. But I'll be honest. I mean, it almost makes it worse to go in there and not be able to afford the 13-inch MacBook Air than not to have tasted of it, to have seen it, to have seen the blazing speed with which it processes data. <laughs> kind of makes it worse. I, I, I got to feel like if Abraham didn't have faith, that's exactly the way he would have encountered this land that now he's been promised, but that's, that's owned by these powerful men that he can't conquer. But by faith, Abraham lived there joyfully, intense, as if for another country, one that has foundations built by God. The third piece to Abraham's story that we get here, the third example of how Abraham takes promises and plants them in his life and makes them substantive, it has to do with his descendants. You know, he'd been promised, as I mentioned before, that, that God was going to make a people out of him, a nation that was going to remake the world. God was going to remake the world through this people. And the ironic thing is that he made this promise to a man who was, who was, who was way past having functioning sexual organs, to a man whose wife was also past a childbearing age, but who, even when she was of childbearing age, was barren. God tells these people that through them he's going to populate the, the new world, the new heavens and the new earth. And you can imagine that Abraham and Sarah would have been extremely skeptical of this. They actually were. The story tells us that. Sarah actually laughed when she was told she was going to have a baby. But at this point, our text is only interested in the fact that eventually they did believe the image I get here is that basically they bought, the, they bought the crib and put it together and they stockpiled the diapers. They couldn't imagine what it would look like for this promise to be fulfilled, but they acted on it. They put the promise at the heart of their life and it became the, the way that they made their decisions, the way that they structured and built their priorities. They took it, something they couldn't see and even imagine, and they integrated it into their life because they believed him who had promised they believed in God. The last piece to this puzzle is in that second section about Abraham, the one that picks up in verse 17. We've got that intervening section we're going to come back to here in a minute, but, but for now, I think this last section rounds out the picture of Abraham's faith and how radical it was. Because what you could begin to see, because this, this promise that God was going to give them children was partially fulfilled when Isaac was born, and the text mentions this, that at, that at an age far beyond the ability to conceive a child naturally, they have a child. You could say, well, I could have believed if I had been able to have a child during, under those circumstances. Of course they believed the promises of God, right? They had proof that he could make good on it. But the next example takes that away. It takes that option off the table. Because in this next example, in one of the most mysterious stories in all of the scriptures... 
God calls Abraham to take this most tangible evidence that God can make good on his promises, to take this being that beyond the love that every father has for his son represents all of Abraham's hope that God's promises can be true, to put that son on the altar and to take his life. We get fixated, I think, on why in the world God would ask something like this. Like, how does that fit with the picture of a loving God that the rest of the Bible portrays for us? The text just isn't interested in that. The point for this text is that, is that this God is worth giving everything to. That ultimately, if he can't make good on his promises, even without the sign of the promise, then, he, then he's not worth trusting anyway. So you may as well give him everything. The point of the text is always about Abraham's faith as it comes out of this test. That he was willing to even, not just take the things that he couldn't see and make them real in his life, but to take the one thing he could see and banish it from his life and still believe. That's what faith looks like. That's what it is to take the substance of the things hoped for. Abraham claimed as a reality what he couldn't see, and he was unfazed by the changing landscape of the things that he did see, even could have this thing that he loved more than anything else, that he was tempted to idolize and hope in, taken out of his life and still believe. One of the, one of the best ways that I heard this described this week and what I read for today was, was that Abraham was willing to see the conflict between the promise of God and this call of God to obedience the conflict between God's promise that he was going to give him Isaac and that through Isaac he was going to give him a people, the conflict between that promise and God's call to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham was willing to see that conflict as God's problem, not his problem. You see that? Abraham was willing to see that conflict as God's problem, not his problem, because he trusted that God was able to work it out. What he trusted, because he was confident in God, plain and simple, was that God could use anything he wanted to bring his promises about. He even, he even believed, according to our author, that God could raise Isaac from the dead if that's what it was going to take. That if, if God is the kind of God who can, who can fulfill the promises that he's made, that even losing Isaac cannot keep him from it. Abraham's faith was resilient. It took the, the things hoped for and put them as a substance in the middle of his life because there was nothing that could happen to him, not even the loss of his son, that would make him believe that he couldn't trust God. And that's what faith looks like. That's the faith-shaped life of Abraham. Now, what we want to do with the last minutes that we've got is try to see how that faith might show itself up in our lives. We want to look at, at, at what, we would ha- what would have to be true of us on the level of, of a principle that guides how we live, that, that, that shapes our actions, what would have to be true of us if we were to get the same commendation from God that Abraham did, if we were to share his faith? Our author points us in the right direction in that middle section, in verses 13 to 16. He, he, like, I, like I mentioned before, it's like he grabs his readers by the collar, shakes them, and says, here's the point of this Abraham example. This is what Abraham believed and what you've got to believe as well. I want to round it out with, a couple of, with just a couple of statements, a couple of things that, that we've got to hold on to if our life is to be shaped by faith in the same way that Abraham's was. And here's the first one. A faith-shaped life 
is a life of dissatisfied exile. A faith-shaped life, one that looks like Abraham's faith, is a life of dissatisfied exile. Now, this theme comes up over and over. It's not just one verse. It's, it's kind of littered throughout the whole, the whole section. It comes up in the description of Abraham as one who lived in tents, looking forward to a city that has foundations. Do you get the distinction there? Abraham didn't set up his own city in the land of promise, but lived in tents as, as almost one who knew that this place was promised to him, but knew that it wasn't his yet because he didn't belong there. He was a stranger and an alien. The same thing comes back up with verse 13, that these people, these who died before they ever saw the promises fulfilled, lived like strangers and exiles on the earth. They made it clear through the way that they lived and the things that they said that they were seeking another homeland, that they didn't belong here. Verse 15, I think, makes the exact same point in a, in a slightly different way. So if, if, if the earlier references are about how Abraham lived once he got to the land of promise, verse 15 is about the fact that once he got here to this land of promise and it wasn't his and he was having to live in tents and be at the mercy of these powerful nations that were around him, he could have gone back to Ur, you know, he could have thought about how good that he had it back in the land of his fathers and gone back there. But he didn't. Verse 15 says, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to, to return. But they desire a better country. Now here, just to tie up all of these references, I think the weight of them, the sort of the, the, the knockout blow that these jabs have been preparing us for, is that Abraham and his descendants... They lived on a fundamentally different set of values than those who lived around them. They knew that they didn't belong because they knew that what they had experienced in this life had not satisfied them. They could have gone back to their country. They'd been down that road. It didn't work. So they chose to live for the promises of God. What it would look like for us to take the same kind of faith and to put it at the center of our lives would be to look at the other things that we've tried place of Jesus, to look at those things with a kind of clear-eyed realism that knows those things never have satisfied us anyway. Where are we going to go? He has the words of eternal life. Where will we go? It would look like us not integrating these foundations into our life, getting too comfortable here, but living, holding everything loosely as if in a tent. So the point is this. I think, I think, it, I think the questions we should be asking ourselves are like these. Uh, do we, like Abraham and his descendants, live like fools on the standards and values of the world that's ours? Do we despise what makes for success here in the way that Abraham did in the eyes of his neighbors? Could someone look at your life and come to believe that your citizenship is somewhere else? Would they see you holding loosely to what you have? as if you're living in a tent? Or would they see you laying a foundation, setting up shop, growing comfortable? I know so many of us in, in our church are, are folks who are training for some later thing in their life, right? People who are in graduate school or, or medical school or residency or whatever. You're on the cusp of some huge life-shaping decisions, where you're going to move, you know, maybe who you're going to marry, what kind of job you want to do, what sort of sector do you want to be in even. 
would someone in your program watching you make decisions that are going to shape the rest of your life be able to tell that you have a different set of standards you're operating on? That you belong to another country? That you're seeking something else? Where they look at you and say, you're laying the same foundations that I'm laying. Bottom line is that if there's no clear difference in the way you process your decisions, no, no difference in the sorts of things you're aiming at or pursuing, there's no difference in what makes you happy or what grieves you, then the chances are you're not living like an exile. Chances are you've been lulled into a false sense of satisfaction. Chances are you've been laying foundations, not dwelling in tents. To share the faith-shaped life of Abraham is to live in this world, not, not isolating ourselves from it, but to live in it with a profound sense of foreignness, of alienness, of exile. That's the first thing I think this text points us to if we were to claim what Abraham had and make it ours. Now, there's another thing that I think is the second side of this same coin, that without this, this second thing, we'll be imbalanced by the first thing we've noticed. So living in, in dissatisfied exile could become idolatrous even for us. It could become wrong if it's not balanced out by the second thing this text points us to, and that's this. A faith-shaped life is one of homesick longing. A faith-shaped life is one of homesick longing. This is the positive side to the same point we've just made. This text, these three verses, or these four verses rather, go back and forth between negative things, like they were exiles, they were strangers, and positive things, they were seeking another country, their citizenship was elsewhere, they want a city that has foundations built by God. And without a good, clear grasp on this longing for the world to come, I don't think we'll, we'll be able to faithfully live like, like exiles here. Because it's not just saying no to what's around us now. It's also got to be a profound and pervasive yes to the promises of God that are still future. I'm going to say a lot more here about what I mean. I think that this, this longing for a country that comes up so many times in these verses... I think it's a great way of visualizing all the promises of God that we've been discussing so far in Hebrews. It's a longing for a world in which death is defeated once and for all. A longing for a cleansing of sin, for a perfect harmony with God and Jesus, for a living with God's presence as if living in the middle of the temple. These are the promises that have been made. It's, it's latching hold to those as what define a new country, a new place to live. Life of faith brings those promises here and now as if they're already true, as if they're, they're already realized because they're so certainly ours in Jesus. So it's not just a dissatisfaction with what's offered here, the exile piece. It's also a profound longing for what's to come. And the reason I call, and this is the key, this is what I really want you to get before we close. The reason I want to highlight that this longing is a longing that's almost a homesickness is that I think in that, in that qualifier that our text gives us, we see the answer to how we're to live in a world that we, that we do really love while living as an exile or a stranger. Now see, a lot of times folks who really like the exile and stranger kind of language, uh, and I, I've certainly been guilty of this in my own life in the past, 
love to, to, to focus on the negatives about this world, to, to sort of almost isolate or withdraw from it, but as if, as if any, any contact with the, the world beyond the church is necessarily defiling. But I think from experience, we know that that just isn't true. Like that there's great beauty and joy in the world that God has made, that he made it as a reflection of himself. That we've got we've to hold on to it. There are great things in human interaction, for example, or in human creativity. There's great things in delicious food or beautiful scenery. Like these things are from God, and they feel good and right to us. Does, does being a stranger or an alien mean we can't savor those things? I think this second point, that we're to live with a sort of homesick longing, says no. What it says, these descriptions of, of the place that they were going as a, a country or a new homeland, I think those descriptions make it seem like they've already tasted a little bit of where they're going. There's a sense in which these things are promised and not yet realized, but, but to describe it as a homeland is to describe it as something that you have nostalgia for, somewhere that you've been or have faint memory of but really want to get to, something that, you, that you've tasted but can't yet latch hold to. And I think what that implies is that we're to, we're to grab hold on the beauty that's in this world, on all of the things that we love about it, as a mere taste or signpost to the world to come. That the, the joy that we have in in raising children and watching them grow, in, in watching football with good friends, with, in, in eating delicious steaks, I don't know, you fill in the blank, is a joy that will be represented and fulfilled ultimately in the world to come. And it makes us homesick for a world in which that's it, in which the things that we love about this one are not tainted by the things that we hate. Living as a stranger, but also one with a homesick longing, is one who can make this distinction, who can hold on to this. There's a lot of ways, I think, to try to bring this imagery of homesickness into our, into our, our minds and, and find it in our experience. Some of the best books that are out there, some of the best literature, is playing in these waters. One of my favorite books is a book called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. It's written from the perspective of a pastor at the end of his life who knows he's about to die. He's got a terminal illness. And because he's about to die, his senses have come alive. He's seeing things in ways that he never has before. He's taking nothing for granted. Every flower, every tree is beautiful to him in a new way because he knows that death calls into question his ability to enjoy them. Looking at death through books like Gilead helps us to, to savor and to hold on to the beauty that we do see in reality here, but that we trust will be free from the prospect of death in the world to come. Another way, I think, to get at it, to bring this imagery into our lives, is to think not at the end of life, but at the beginning of it. One of the reasons that we love books that are written from the perspective of children is that they they portray to us a kind of innocence, a kind of wonder at the world that hasn't been tainted yet by its brokenness. So books like To Kill a Mockingbird or The Yearling, these, these coming-of-age stories that start with children just loving the life that they lead. And one, of the, one of my favorite things about parenting so far, especially parenting this toddler that we've got now, is that I'm, I'm getting to relive some of the wonder of, of, of the world through his eyes because there's nothing that isn't interesting to him. When he... When he sees animals, even squirrels, that are just basically rats with tails who get into everything, he's fascinated by them. He loves leaves 
He likes sticks and acorns. He's fascinated by flowers, by the fact that we like to smell them, by the rain. For him, the patch of overgrowth behind our house may as well be a tropical rainforest, and the trails that lead through it are just full of enchantment to him. He's always wanted to go back there. He's blown away by human creativity, by music and film, really bad kids' music and film. He's just blown away by it. He's blown away by engineering, by feats of human engineering, by cranes and bulldozers and backhoes. He's fully immersed in loving relationships, and he doesn't know any different. The world is full of beauty. It drips with the grace of God. But he's going to grow up. He'll come to know the destructive power of rain. He'll know the savagery of animals. He'll know the greater cruelty of humans. He'll hear about Auschwitz. He'll know what it is to be disliked, to be abandoned and betrayed. The trick to living with faith is not letting this encounter with brokenness deprive us of the taste for good and beauty in the world. For the conjunction, and don't miss this, the conjunction between the beauty and joy and grace that's all around us and the brokenness that no adult can deny. The conjunction of those two realities is what creates in us a longing as for home. What we're longing for is a world in which we have the childlike wonder that Walter has now, in which our senses are fully alive and engaged by the beauty of what God has made. And yet we don't have to fight the cynicism that comes from seeing it corrupted by sin. Because in that world to come, all things are made new. In that world to come, our wonder and joy at its beauty will not be born in ignorance or naivety, but in reality. Because in that world, Jesus himself, by his death and resurrection, has banished once and for all every atom that rebels against the authority of his Father and ours. And in that world, there is peace. Living with a homesick longing in this one is about looking to that one and integrating it into our life now as if it's already here, as if it's ours. That makes us strangers and aliens because the brokenness we see around us is not true. It can't last. It isn't us. But the beauty that we see reminds us of a world that's coming and nothing can stop its coming. It's coming. And what faith looks like, what faith looks like is living for that world now as if it's already here. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. I grew up on them, read them, all of them, multiple times as a kid. One of my favorite scenes is from The Last Battle, where Narnia, this, this world that Lewis has created in which children are, are learning about life, are coming of age, it passes away, it dies. And in its place, they are taken by Aslan, the lion, the great lion, further up and further in to a new country, 
as they get further into it, they notice that there's beauty here that they've never seen anywhere else. Like it just blows them away. There is something not normal about what they're seeing. And yet at the same time, it seems familiar, strangely familiar. Almost like they'd been here before. They begin to see objects that they recognize and know. Eventually they, they see that this place is in fact a version of Narnia, the world that they loved and mourned when it died. But it's a different Narnia. It's the unicorn who speaks truth. And language I can only imagine is a reference to Hebrews chapter 11. The unicorn says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved, don't miss this, this is it. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. We are called to a country that's coming. It's real and it's true. And it's ruled by a God who is wise and loving and powerful. By a God who has bridged the distance between that world and ours through the body of his own son. And through his son, invites us through faith to bring that world into our lives now to make it substantive and real. That's what it would look like for us to live the faith of Abraham. Let's pray that God would make it so. Oh, Father, our eyes are so fickle, just like our hearts. We are constantly looking around at all the things that could call us to question your promises rather than reaffirm them. I feel like I'm so much more likely to get cynical than I am to get hopeful. And that shows that I lack the faith of Abraham, who could see even the only tangible sign of the promise that he owned stripped away from him and still not doubt you. What I pray for myself and for my friends is that you would give us this faith that you would help us, that you would protect us from becoming comfortable here in this world that is not our home. And that you would keep us from comfort here, from settling for cheap counterfeits because what we see in this world that testifies to us of your beauty also reminds us of a promise. A promise that the world you have made for us, the world that will not be limited by death or threatened by evil is our eternal home. It's a city with foundations you have built, a country to which we are all invited to go. We want to claim that by faith. Would you help us, we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen.